So, John. Yes. I am curious <laughs> if you are familiar with the show How It's Made. Have you ever seen that? Do you, do you know of it? I do know of it. I don't know that I've watched it, but I do know of it. So I think it debuted on Discovery. It's now on the Science Channel. Yeah. And it's for nerds who want to get into various things and understand how things are made. Perfect for us. Us being Yacht Rock nerds. Right. I thought it would be fun, and you agreed, so here we are, to do a show on how it's made. How Yacht Rock really was made, not so much how it is made today. Yeah. It's something I can talk about for a long time. So, And some of the stuff we will cover eventually is not just true of Yacht Rock um, it's a lot of conventions that were done during that period of time that certainly will help to shape what you're hearing in Yacht Rock, but they weren't necessarily all exclusive to Yacht Rock. Yeah. And what's, I think, amazing to me as somebody who's dabbled in, say, GarageBand or Logic, and you do this for a living nowadays, mm-hmm. is a lot of the shortcuts that you're able to do nowadays on computers yeah. and redo things and copy and paste. Sometimes I feel like if you're a good software engineer, you could be a good music engineer nowadays, it seems like. You won't have the maybe the ear for it, but you can acquire the uh, technical aspect, which is really different than how music mm-hmm. was being recorded in the late 70s. Yeah, and I'm not convinced that it's better now No, in, in terms of uh, what you can do. I don't think it's made better music, which will eventually kind of get to that. Well, and I think partially is what I just said is that, you know, even in my business, uh, my day job is in marketing, is I could come across graphic designers who are re- really know Photoshop and InDesign well, but they don't have an artistic eye. And so, yes, you can, you're a software jockey, but you're not necessarily an artist. So, I think what's so wonderful about what we're going to dive into is to know what the limitations were. And maybe you could point some of Mm -hmm. these things out uh, Mm -hmm. as the expert, what the limitations were at the time and how they found ends of rounds for what the limitations were. You know, take us back in time. Let's say there's a band, a yacht rock band that's ready to record. What happens? Because we talked uh, since we've started this podcast about how it was usually a session cat for hire situation, even with the bands that, you know, we all knew as bands. Yes. Steely Dan, the perfect example of that, as we talked about in the last episode, there were, uh, you know, self-contained bands, uh, Pablo Cruz, Firefall, there's others. But so much of the yacht rock stuff was built off of these session player bands and as we've talked about that the the art of putting one of those together isn't as easy as saying well just get me a great guitar player get me a great bass player great drummer uh because there, there were so many that were so good but it was a case of what was their style what did they bring how is that going to work with what someone else brought um so it was to say it was just guns for hire isn't completely accurate because there were certain groups of guys that played together a lot, and I think they were probably brought together sometimes as a a group thing. The Toto guys are the, be the most famous ones: David Page, Jeff Percaro, um, Steve Lukather. Uh, from bass players, they had Mike Percaro and David Hungate, depending on the time frame. But uh, a lot of times they were brought in as a group, not just because they were all great musicians, and not just because. They played well together. What they had that was so special, as well as some of the other musicians that were close with them, is they had this innate ability to arrange a song on the fly. They would get a song that they would show up, and they wouldn't even necessarily know what they're recording. They would get there, charts would be handed out to them, and charts may not be anything more than scratching a few chord changes and some lyrics, right? 
Um, so not actual sheet music. Not even, actual full sheet music. It didn't necessarily tell you feel. It didn't tell you where the stops were, where the where the kicks were, where the accents were going to be. These guys had the ability to take that and kind of run through it a little bit rough, and, and then say, well, "What if we do this here? What if we do that there?" And they within a very short period of time could formulate a whole arrangement that has the kicks in it has the breaks for the chorus it has the way the rhythm's going to change the bass part's going to change from this to this from the verse to the chorus all of that stuff was figured out by these guys um there would be obviously some input from the artist depending on who the artist was but these guys were brought in because they had the ability to take a song that was very two-dimensional on paper and just kind of stretch it out into three dimensions and get all those different parts and all those nuances that we love about Yacht Rock, you know? Mm -hmm. Because you're not just, when you're listening to Yacht Rock, you're not usually just listening to the singer. A lot of music is made to just make you listen to the singer, but Yacht Rock is so much more about the instrumentation. And these guys particularly had that ability to do that arranging. In fact, in uh, Steve Lukather's book, he jokes that he should have gotten paid a lot more. They should have gotten um, royalties on a lot of these songs because they half wrote them by virtue of their arranging. Now, he wouldn't name names, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, and then they would come in and they would establish what I think we call the basics, right? So they would cut the basics. Basics being... Drums, probably, mm-hmm. bass, um, a guitar part, and a keyboard part, right? And so... Yeah, ideally, you'd, you'd want to capture all that and be really close to it as is. You could punch in and fix some things here and there. But really, what they had to have was a, the great drum track, mm-hmm. because drums with all the multiple microphones and then the cymbals and stuff kind of constantly ringing all that stuff, it was really difficult to punch in and fix a section and come out. So... They were really after a great drum track. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, you caught more than that because you didn't, you know, the stuff wasn't, the, the feel of this comes from guys playing together, not yeah. from fix this, fix that, fix that. You know, it's not that, that which now goes back to the original setup. Yeah. Is it better today that we can fix this, fix that, and, and move this? Oh, that guy was, you know, a little bit late on that bass note. Do we want to slide it? Yes, you can do that. You can fix all that. You can make it, quote, better. It doesn't necessarily amass to something better because yeah. now you've changed what the original performance was. If you can, if you can capture the human feel of an actual band playing a track together mm-hmm. synchronously, then that has a whole different vibe. Which isn't the same as perfect either. No, doesn't have to be perfect. Which kind of goes back to, I remember a, a quote that uh, when I was producing you guys with Jess Grew that you guys like to misquote me on all the time. <laughs> oh, what did we say? Well, you always quoted it as saying that I told you that um, um, perfection can be your greatest enemy. And what I said was an endless pursuit of perfection can mm. be your greatest enemy. Yes. The idea that you can never let something be done as it is and have feel that, oh, well, that wasn't quite perfect. That, you know, but that's what human you know, interaction is. It's not yeah. perfect. Well, which reminds me of the song that was written about me is, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. <laughs> but I digress. So you've got the drummer probably in its own in his own booth yes. because you're not capturing all the other stuff on right. the mics, right? Right. And then you've got a um, – you might have the band together in a same room, but they're kind of channeling through chords. So they're going either through an amp or directly into a board. So their sound's right. captured that way. Right. And then you might have a lead singer in the control room doing like a reference vocal. Is that right? Yeah. So that was um, the way studios were set up back in the 70s. Um Nearly every genre of music at the time had evolved to a part where they were trying to get ultimate isolation between instruments. 
they wanted to get the cleaner, cleaner recording, and that meant isolating, not getting leakage from hearing uh, the guitar bleeding into the snare drum microphone or vice versa. You wanted the most isolation you could get gives you the most latitude when mixing. And um, the studios were set up that they generally had a large room in the middle where um, guys could set up, but they didn't always set up the whole band out there. A lot of times the, the drummer would have his separate isolation booth, as they called it, a separate isolation room. Mm-hmm. And those rooms were deadened heavily. A lot of times they had shag carpet on the walls and very, very dead because you wanted to, to be able to mic the drums as close at the source and get right off the drum heads that sound. You know, you didn't want all this echoing around in the room. And then the same was true with the other instruments. You, if you had an acoustic guitar, you needed to get that into its own room so that it could uh, be recorded clean without bleed. And generally that meant the, all those different isolation booths got used up by either guitar amps, guitar player, whatever. And that meant that, well, the lead singer who sings along with the band just so the guys kind of know where they are, mm-hmm. his part wasn't necessarily a keeper, but they wanted to be able to hear it so that they could remember where the chorus hits and all that. So he might be in the control room where the engineer is singing just on a, a you know handheld mic just for reference. Yep. Well, let's go into the technology then, because that's to me the most interesting is the what they were recording into, which nowadays is a laptop, maybe. Yeah. At a sophisticated studio, you're still using a, a board, but it's digital. What was the this 24-track tape that they were recording into? It was analog, for one. Mm-hmm. Yes, analog tape. Eventually, it became digital tape, but it was still, in the early days of even digital, it was um, where they had twenty what they call 24 tracks. There was, you know, the original, there was two track, then four, then eight, then 16. It grew out to 24, and that was a tape that was two inches wide. And um, across that two inches were 24 sort of individual lanes. And on each of those lanes or tracks, you would have one microphone or one thing. So the bass drum might be on one track, snare drum on one track, each tom on its own track, guitar, you know, everything would have its own track so that when it came up on the console, when you're going to do your mix, you could solo like just the guitar track and that's all you'd hear. You could bring that fader up, you'd hear the guitar, you'd take that down, you'd turn up, just hear the bass. So everything had its own isolation and could be treated separately. Um, eventually that became digital, but as I said, there were still limits to the amount of tracks because the tape was only so big. It really wasn't until we got into, what, the 2000s or whatever when we got into the digital audio workstations and Pro Tools is the you know most famous name, that we got to a point where you almost tracks are almost limitless. Mm-hmm. The limit is really only by the end you know, of the capacity of your computer, but the, the limiting the amount of tracks that these guys had forced them to make musical decisions early on when they were recording stuff. They had to figure out what their vocal blend was going to sound like. How many guitar parts did they want to have? Where, where's the solos going to be? All this stuff. They had to know all of that so that they could figure out where it was going to live on this 24-track tape. You know, in having that limitation can sound like just that, like it's a limitation. But really what it allowed you to do is make a decision record that decision, and mentally move on to the next thing. The thing I see so much now with digital audio station production is that people leave all of this decision-making to the end. Mm. They record everything, because whatever can. it is, whatever, I don't know, we'll fix it in the mix, we'll fix it later. And <clears throat> what you end up hearing back is something that doesn't sound like a musical arrangement as much as an attempt to mix all of that stuff and cram it all into a small space. Yeah. So these guys had to do a lot of this stuff, and they had a lot of tricks 
that they did in order to make this stuff happen, which is pretty interesting. Well, and mind you, then, I'm guessing a drummer alone is taking eight to ten of those tracks by the yes. time those are all mic'd up. Right. If you're doing vocals, now you've got, you know, with these plush, lush harmonies, I should say, you've got another handful of tracks taken up. What happens in the case of when you run out of tracks and you still have an orchestra to record? <laughs> yeah. Um, the story about Shaka Khan yes. is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, some of that technology came a little bit later, but you know, going back to the lush vocals, that was why they would um, try to record groups of people at a time around one microphone. The art of three or four people around one microphone, and everybody has to nail their part in mm-hmm. tune in time. You know, which is what you know makes me marvel about the Beach Boys stuff. You know, six guys around one microphone, and it they, has to be mixed, pre-mixed going in as they're doing it. They right. have to blend as they're doing it. And nowadays, going back, we would record each voice separately, and then we would auto-tune each one, and we would align each one so that their syllables hit exactly the same. And it's just, it. even if it sounds great, I listen to it, maybe because I know behind the curtain, I listen to it, and no matter how good it sounds today, I walk away somewhat unimpressed because I know how they can do it, yeah. you know? When I hear something from 1963, the Beach Boys doing something, I'm like, wow. So anyway, to go back to your question, um, before there was – in the early days, they might um, take like a rough mix of the song to a studio wherever the orchestra was going to be, and they would record that orchestra – and generally, they would take all the mics and they would make a stereo mix of that orchestra, bring that tape back, and attempt to align it with the original and record that back into your 24 track aligned with all the other original instruments. So, but later on, they developed this thing called time code synchronization. And what that did was allow two 24 track tape decks or more to all link up to this synchronization device. And when you started one tape, the others started, and they all played in time. So now if you had two decks, you had 48 tracks. Or if you had room for a third deck, you had 72. So when the things got really involved, they would record and fill up roughly uh, the 24-track of the original instrumentation. And then on a separate 24-track tape, then they would record the orchestra. And so you'd still have all your microphones separate and you could mix the orchestra on the fly and that would line up then with your original tape, but you could still mix all that. And so the Shaka Khan story was something that uh, one of our teachers at Berkeley College of Music talked about was that he was involved uh, as an assistant on a session where they recorded all the basic stuff. Then they would make a stereo mix down to that, send that out to wherever the orchestra was. I don't recall if it was London or L.A. or where it was. Um, but then they would send him back a 24-track tape of the entire orchestra that he could then align up with his original session, and then another separate 24-track tape would get sent to wherever Shaka Khan was, and she would be in her studio, and she'd fill that one up with all of her vocals, all her harmonies and stuff. So what you'd end up at mix time was a 24-track tape full of the original instrumentation, another one with the orchestra, and then a third one with the vocals and hopefully it all lined up and you had a, a console that could handle 72 channels plus wow. <laughs> all of that had to be met. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Incredible. This episode is brought to you by visit Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia. There's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. 
you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, what I love so much about this time period is that it, it's after, how do I want to put this? It's after the 60s where the artists were basically just you know, recording pop music and starting to get into rock and accepting the limitations of an analog format. Mm-hmm. And it predates this period where everything was maybe made easier and more convenient through yeah. computers and technology. It's an era, era in which necessity truly became the mother of invention. And you saw, you know, product, music production was as much of an art form as the actual art that they were recording. And you saw all this technology emerge because yeah. of it. Uh, it seemed like every year or two, you know, there was something big, brand new that was uh, coming on the horizon. So, um, you know, I, I have this theory that uh, musical um, development, musical evolution was could directly be paced along with the development of musical technologies. So really... Coming out of the big band stuff of the 30s, 40s, like you say, where you were just recording a band and you started to get into this rock era and suddenly the people were figuring out how to electrify amps mm-hmm. and then how to distort those electrified amps. And that brought out a whole new sound. Then, as I said, we went from two tracks to four tracks to eight tracks to 16 tracks to 24 tracks. And each time that new thing gave the artists some new palette to work with. There were developments of um, tape delays and then digital delays and then reverb units and these chorus, flanger, phaser effects, all these different crazy effects. And suddenly the musicians are given these things and like, wow, what can I do with that? And that brought out a whole entire new level of experimentation. We had analog synthesizers that could play one note at a time. And then we had analog synthesizers where you could play chords. And then we had digital synthesizers. So every few years, something new was coming. And with each one of those things, there was opportunity for experimentation. Now, Yacht Rock lives kind of right in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. Um, We had reached a point of 24-track recording. So... um, and, and the quality of the recording also was very, very good, the quality that these tapes could do. So we would kind of reached a pinnacle in terms of fidelity of what we could capture. Later on, it just became a case of how many more tracks. But I'm not sure that we increased quality so much. Mm-hmm. You know, the, all of these electric guitar sounds had really been developed by then. The reverbs and the delays and things had reached a, a, a real level of you know, where they were really easy to work with and they sounded really good. Synthesizers, we were kind of, in the Yacht Rock era, bridging between the early analog synthesizers to the mid-level, the mid-era analog synthesizers and then the early digital ones like uh, the Yamaha DX7 and things like that. So all of these things were either coming new or still very fresh at the time of Yacht Rock. You know, with any sound, it becomes dated over time. Right. Because... You, your ear attaches it to a certain time frame. But the Yacht Rock thing was probably at the pinnacle of the speed of uh, technological advancement. In, in just before, I think, just before where the technology sort of outpaced the art, and that's when everything became digitized and electronic and the new wave sound of the mid to late 80s. And even, you know, I think rock and roll became mostly heavy metal and it was super processed. But, you know... You think of the drum machine is to me that's like a thing of you know 
85 and on. Mm-hmm. But there's actually an interesting story relative to Steely Dan. Yeah, it goes in back a, to the 70s. In really. the 70s. The story of Wendell. What is that? Wendell. Well, Roger Nichols was sort of the engineer or technical assistant to Gary Katz, who was producing Steely Dan at the time. And this is one of those things, going back to the relentless pursuit of perfection mm-hmm. or whatever it was, that Fagan and Becker uh, apparently became obsessed. Once they started working with these top musicians, they realized how much more technically accurate these guys could play. And that became a fascination with them almost to a fault, in my opinion. Hmm. What happened was when they got around to doing gaucho, they became obsessed with having the perfect drum take. We talked about that a lot of times you're recording these early sessions just to capture a perfect drum take. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a story in Modern Drummer about Jeff Percaro playing, I mean, Jeff Percaro, how many, how many times do we have to say that he's the best there ever was, in my opinion? Right. right. Especially, well, at least at this genre. In this sure. genre. Yeah. At this genre, yeah. And um, was Babylon Sisters? Mm-hmm. Is that the song I'm thinking of? Yeah, Babylon Sisters, where they say it took 46 takes for them to stitch together a drum track from Jeff Percaro. I mean, yeah, wow. you're, you're kidding me, right? We have a flag on the play. Our real-time fact checkers have declared this claim to be Lacking accuracy or dubious at best, the aforementioned song should actually be Gaucho, the title track from the album Gaucho. Five yard penalty, still first down. Lord, I know you're a special friend, but you don't seem to understand. We got heavy rollers, I think you should know. And that's not even all that complex, really, compared to some of the other stuff they played. No, it, it's not really complex, but it was one of those things where they probably heard all oh, that snare drums, uh, you know, millisecond later. Yeah. And so Fagan had this lament that, man, I wish we could, uh, you know, put together a drum track just the way we wanted it and with just, you know, with good sounds and all that stuff. And Roger Nichols sort of spoke up and said, well, yeah, I could do that. And they're like, wait, what? You can do that? It's like, yeah, I can do that. And they're like, well, what do you need? He said 150 grand. And this is what year? 78? 78, I think it was. So by today's yeah. standard, half a million or more, yeah. probably? Yeah. Uh, he was, Roger Nichols was also a bit of an inventor. Mm-hmm. So he probably had this thing in a working state, um, but not really refined enough to use. But um, so he came up with this machine, Wendell, which allowed him to. Um, Build a drum track, almost a pre-drum machine. It later got used uh, for drum replacement. So say a drummer played a part and, you know, you you liked the way he played it, but maybe the kick and the snare sounds as they got recorded were a little bit weak. Well, you could send the bass drum track to the input of Wendell and have it trigger out a different bass drum sound. Hmm. Each time the the uh, bass drum hit on the tape, it would trigger a sound out of Wendell. Same with the snare. So you could replace... Uh, drum sounds and there was a lot of that that was done um, but I guess Wendell they, he, they actually because of the technical achievement of Wendell they got a platinum record because you know, the Gaucho album went platinum um, they actually got one that was actually sent to and named for Wendell a platinum record for Wendell for the drums so the drummer it. ended up getting a Grammy after all and it wasn't even a drummer <laughs> it wasn't Carl <laughs> it was Wendell yeah, I almost wonder if they used Wendell in some of the re-triggering from Picaro's, uh, from Picaro's kit because it, those sounds on that on that tune sound like Wendell sounds to me. They don't sound like Jeff's kit. 
to huh. me. So Interesting. Um, just a guess. I don't know. So, And then shortly after this, there was something called uh, – well, educate me in, in terms of the timing. But what was the Lindrum and how did that change things? Lindrum was um, – there were a couple generations of it. It was one of the first drum machines to sound more or less like real drums. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were fatter sounds. Prior to that, they were a lot of the sounds had very they were blips and bloops and psts and things like, like that. The Casio that, keyboard sound. Yeah, they were all some sort of variation on that. Uh, and then they developed this Lindrum. Uh, Roger Lynn, another great inventor. First was the LM1, then the Lindrum, and then there were other iterations after that. But these had actual what they called EEPROM uh, chips in the machine that you could actually swap out if you wanted a different snare sound. You they came with different ones. Um, you could actually, I guess, burn your own sounds onto these mm, cool. chips. But the Lindrum was something that for the first time. Um, Gave people the ability to build drum parts on a drum machine that sounded real. I'm going to say that in quotations because it, it never really sounded real, but at least the drum sounds had this, the kick drum had the weight of a kick drum. The snare drum had the punch of a, of a real snare drum. It, they didn't sound as real, maybe to my ears nowadays, as they did to people at the time. But it was a major, major leap forward uh, in terms of drum sounds. Well, and I. I feel like I have a decent ear for this stuff, mm-hmm. um, and you were playing some David Pack, uh, yeah. his solo stuff, mm-hmm. and you said, oh, you might not like this, it's got the Lindrum sound, and I gotta tell you, I was fooled on the first couple songs that you played. Yeah, some of it, did not not the entire album, but there are some uh, Lindrum okay. songs on there. Yep, so, all right, well, I'm dying to hear some of the stuff in action, so can we take a few examples and play maybe what came out of it, and then you can talk through... What went into it to really talk sure. about how it's made? Yeah. Where do you want to start? I got a couple different ideas. Um, maybe we start with Toto's Africa? Yes. Okay. Africa. You, you can When you listen to some of these stories, you can hear how these um, ideas, the way that these guys solved problems, became sources of inspiration for some of the um, equipment maybe that was developed later. Um so here's a perfect example. We talk, we, everybody knows, even a layman musician or non-musician knows what, you know, drum loops or looping is, right? Now, they were doing it before there was such thing as a looping pedal, before there was a, such thing as a sampler or anything like that. In Africa was this concept that David Page had written this song, but um, he was close, obviously, with Jeff Percaro, and uh, they wanted to do something different uh, drum wise on it. So, uh, Jeff got together a group of his favorite percussionists. Um, some of the mainstay names within the genre, including his dad, I think, uh, I think Joe Percaro may have been even it, but they worked out that whole percussion thing you hear that fades in at the beginning. But that was done on, it's like either a two measure or four measure loop. They created this whole thing, this whole groove they mixed it down to a stereo tape, and then they had to figure out, okay, we want these four bars to play throughout the entire song. So how do we do that? Copy so, and paste. Yeah, no, no copy <laughs> and paste, right. So what they did was they would record that, as I said, down to a, a reel-to-reel tape, 
and they would find, mark off the beginning of that and slice it with a razor blade. Then they'd find out where the exact ending of it was and slice that razor blade there and stick the two ends together. But now you probably have, I don't know how many feet of tape, right? It doesn't fit. It's just way bigger than the, the machine. So they had to find a way to loop it around the machine so it goes past the, the play head on it. Mm-hmm. But with all that extra tape, they had to find a way to keep that from tangling and um, staying off the floor. Right. You know? So they arranged mic stands and all these things throughout the room and wrapped the tape around it <laughs> so that it God. kept the tension. And then they would proceed to you know, put record on the 24-track tape and play this thing back into it for... Five, six minutes, whatever it felt they needed. And that would sort of auto-feed in? Yeah. Okay. And it would just keep looping around the room. Around the, the mic was just stand. going around, around the mic stands all the way around <laughs> the room. And they played that in. Then, so that was probably stereo, probably two tracks of the 24 track. Um, supposedly, Jeff Percaro played drum fills live afterwards. Um, you hear those going into the chorus. But then they built the whole song on top of that after they had already laid this tape loop. So imagine this room with this, I don't I have no idea how many feet of tape it was wow. that they had to, it's like the uh, guy with the spinning plates on the stick, you know, trying to keep it all up. <laughs> how did they get the, the copying part after they did it the first time? So you have four measures and then you're going to figure out where that, you know, you said slice it. Oh yeah. And you ends. connect the two ends and there's your loop. Oh, so it's just goes it's a big around circle. and around. Ah, it's a big circle. It goes gotcha. around and around. Yeah. God. It's incredible. <laughs> Why didn't they just copy and paste? I know. And so now we think of looping as just, you know, something so basic. So easy. Yeah. You yeah. don't even give any thought to it. But that's back then it was, again, it was like an art form. It's like, we're going to figure out a cool way to do this, even though it can't be done. Right. That's incredible. Right. Well, one of my favorite stories, we can come back to Toto because I'm sure there's tons of them. But one yep. of my favorite is a video that you sent me, which is the making of the 10cc song, uh, I'm Not In Love. Yeah. So play a little of that so we get a sense for what they were trying to create. Yeah, we're drawing your attention to the vocals here, the this vocal choir that you hear. Today, this might be fairly, I don't want to say simple, but it would be more of an uh, exercise in, again, software engineering, where maybe you would, I'm just guessing, you tell me where I'm wrong here, you would record a human voice into a microphone, and then that would become something that maybe you could sample, and then you could put Correct. that into a keyboard bed, and then you could just, with the keyboard, you could actually just play all the chords mm-hmm. and automate all of the stuff, automate the fade-ins and the swells and the fade-outs, and right. all of the stuff would be fairly simple. There would be not nearly as much art to the way that they actually did it back in the 70s. Well, what they did was was really brilliant. Um, so they had this idea that they wanted to record the entire scale of the key that they were in. I believe it was the key of C. But they wanted to record the whole octave of the key of C with just their voices. So what they did was they would go into the studio. All the guys would probably be around one mic. I don't know if there was three or four of the guys, three, I think it was. And they would all sing the note C and they would just do, ah, and hold it as long as they could. The note, not the chord, just Just the the note note C, just the note, single note. And then they did that with D E F G A B all the way up and then did a C at the upper octave. So they had really, what's that? Nine notes. Mm-hmm. So the the octave from C to C. And they would do that, but they would all, all three would sing and then they would do it again and again and again and again. So that you had maybe eight tracks of those guys, which if eight times, 
each three guys sing 24 of them, right? Mm -hmm. 24 dudes. It it might have been even more than that, but they would bounce that down to one track. So you would have on one track, you would have all those voices. So say it's 24 or whatever the number is, all singing C. And they would proceed to do that for D for E. So that they had 24 or whatever number of voices that they had singing each note of the octave. Now, they then wanted to let that play on a tape loop again. So that was going to loop throughout the entire thing. So they created a tape loop out of that. And that was going to play underneath the song, uh, We're Not in Love, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not in love. I'm not in love, right. And as they were playing, they would have each fader would be marked as to which note was on each fader. And they would then, while you're hearing the song playing, they're bringing up, the faders of the individual notes of this chord. And so if it's a C chord, you might bring up what C, notes? E, and G, and they push those faders up, and then they would bring those down. And a lot of times they would actually push up almost all the faders, and you'd get this wild cluster of sound. And they being the guys in the band had to do this. Yes. So they were all of a sudden uh, drafted or conscripted as engineers during the mix down because they had to sit there with their hands on the faders. Very hands on. Some of them may have never done this before. Right. And now they're not just singing and playing. They're actually engineering on the fly. Yeah. And I got the impression that it was before they were able, they didn't automate it at all. I mean, there was early automation and stuff, but it sounded like they did it. And I mean, that, that became as much a part of the performance as them playing. Well, if I recall, to, to prove that there was no automation, I, it's my favorite part of the story, so it's got to be true. And we'll we'll link to the video in the show notes, so you got to watch it. It's like a 10-minute video. But they actually would masking tape the faders together, so as you were pushing them up, they couldn't get out of alignment. Yeah, and they couldn't you know, could only go so high, too. Like, yeah, they yeah. only go so high. So they're yeah. using masking tape, uh, eight hands. Yeah. And just, you know, a director was like cueing it, like conducting an orchestra, which is what the producer was probably doing and pointing at you for this chord and pointing at the for this chord. It's amazing. Yeah, so each guy probably had three faders to yeah. handle and they had to know which what chords were coming. I mean, they knew the song, but I guess the original plan was that they recorded the band and then sang the, all the vocals over it, the, 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 the lyric vocals I'm talking about, not this choir thing. But eventually, their ultimate plan was to pull out all the band tracks and just have the lead vocal over the top of this choir. Now, it ended up obviously being released with the full band because they they just loved the way that it grooved. But they probably thought that all of those voices were going to clash too much with the instrumentation. Right. You know, but they needed the instrumentation there in order to be able to lay down the original lead vocal. But it would be interesting to hear what that would have sounded like if you removed all the band and just had the choir and the lead vocals. Yeah. Yeah, and now that you know how it's made, and picture these blokes, you know, on a Saturday morning with masking tape and a cup of coffee in front of a board in real time, pushing up levers and back and forth. Now listen to how perfectly it sounds when you hear the song actually mixed. It's just a silly face I'm going through. And did they know how amazing it sounded? You know, sometimes you're involved in a project and you get so into it. You're so close to it. You've been so involved in the technical aspect of it. So you know where all the flaws are. Mm-hmm. Did they know what of a gem that they had? And if they did, then how do you top that next? What do you do next? I right. mean, it's... Just- well, to me, it sounds per- to me, it sounds perfect as if you had all of today's technology. It feels like a computer did that. I know, and it predates even some of the basic technology. You know, yeah, that, you know, really well, amazing. 
speaking of other ways of doing vocals and back to Toto, yeah. there was an interesting, similar, I think, if I recall correctly, to the Shaka Khan story you told in yeah. terms of getting on an airplane when you had to get all of these vocals together. So what is what were some of the tricks of the trade for Toto? And if you have a song in mind, reference it. Yeah, a lot of the, um, by, by probably Toto Force, that is the same album with um, Africa on it. And Africa is probably a perfect example again. Uh, but there are others. And that David Page, who was kind of the leader of the band at the time, him and Jeff Percaro, but David Page kind of got uh, dubbed the guy that was going to handle all the vocal recording, not not being the singer, but and actually overseeing all the recording of the vocals. And because uh, he did a lot of the vocal arranging. And Bobby Kimball, who was the high voice singer for Toto at the time, um, supposedly, according to Luke, Ather, had some difficulties with intonation in his upper register. And, you know, he does give the caveat that David Page had this thing about trying to push their stuff in, as high in the register as he could possibly get it. So he's, you know, just driving Bobby Kimball into the highest reaches of his his range and then expecting him to get these perfect harmonies with perfect intonation. And again, he couldn't fix it later on. So he had to capture it perfect. Well, big painstaking process because every time they had a part that they wanted to do, they would sing it three times. They would triple track everything. So now here's Bobby Kimball working at the highest part of his register. And I'm not even going to say struggling because I don't know that he was struggling to get it, but anybody would, you know, have some level of imperfection up there and David Page was pursuing the, the perfection you know so they eventually came up with this idea for a compromise if they get it right once you know stack all of the vocals they need on that first chorus exactly like they like them then they would mix that down just the vocals to a stereo tape and they would go and do what's called flying them in on the ensuing choruses the second chorus and the choruses at the fade out what that meant was there was no copy and paste where I could just drag it and line it up and see where it goes. And you had to have your main 24-track tape in record waiting for the uh, vocals to be put in, and that's on a separate tape deck. And as soon as you got to the right point, the person running that tape deck has to hit play at just the right time so that tape plays the <laughs> premixed vocals back to the 24-track tape at the exact right place. And I was, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, hit and miss on that. Yeah. But you had to fair, you would mark the tape with a little bit of grease pencil so you knew how to align it. And then you'd take your trigger from where in the song do I want to hit play and hit it just at the right place, oh fire those vocals in. So they found that to be um, a time-saving way of doing what was early copy and paste. Unbelievable. On the fly, too. Yeah. So that's how they would double some of those parts. Not actually make him sing them again, but just... Well, he would sing them all once. But then play it again. Then each time it happened, each other chorus would be that original stack just copied down. But that was the process they had to go through to copy it down. Unbelievable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Well, and then if you missed our previous episode where we did a deep dive into Asia, there's all sorts of tricks that we got into in that one. And uh, we referenced a video that you can find online, The Making of Peg, which talked about some interesting ways that they, they would record. So, all right, well, then let's get into the lightning round. Are you ready? I am. Are you going first? Oh, I, I guess don't know. so. <laughs> okay. Well, of course, we're doing is it yacht or is it not? Right. Buried treasure and uh, something off the map. So why don't you hit us up with a uh, yacht or not? Okay. Yacht. I have a yacht or not here um, because I try to find songs that maybe are right on the cusp of being yacht or not. And it's almost like there's no wrong answer, but it's just I like to hear the opinions. So this one is from 1981 by Marty Balin. It's called Hearts. Is everything all right? Love the tune. Um, I reflexively put it into Yacht because I like the song so much. Um, but if I sit and really listen to it and dissect it, I'm probably going to say that it is not. But I'm going with the feels on this one. I'm going Yacht. Yeah. I'm going Yacht on that one as well. I, you know, Even though he was in Jefferson Starship, which I, you know, I don't consider Yacht. Some people yeah. put some of their stuff in there. I don't let that affect me. And that does hit. This one did have a 49.5 rating. Ooh. So you want to talk about on the cusp. Yeah, right? so 50 is the line. So if you're, 50 you is can't the get line. much closer. All right. I'm going to hit you with a song that um, I'm just curious where, you're, where, where you fall on this one. Glenn Fry, The One You Love. I see that one come up a lot, and I'm going to go with the the reflex that I have every single time, and it's a no for me. Mm, um, uh, do you like the song? I do like the song. Um, it feels more like it's just kind of a, a plodding ballad thing. It doesn't have, to me, any of the sophistication or jump that I associate with yacht rock, I guess. Mm -hmm. Fairly yeah. simple in its chord structure. And so, yeah, intellectually, it's a not for me, but because of the feels, I'm going yacht. So don't hate me. You're an easy sell this week. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Easy room. So let me hit you with a buried treasure. Um, this is a song I found on Yacht Rock Miami, which is the place to find buried treasures. Absolutely. And uh, never heard of the artist, never heard of the song. I think I was even in the shower when it came out. I hopped out of the shower. I'm like, what is this? Because the bass playing so awesome. The guitar playing so awesome. Mm. And it's uh, the artist is Shackalack. And the song is Bitch to the Boys. I had no idea. where <laughs> I do not know this song at all. This is cool. Yep. Yeah. That is a good one. Very, uh, very so good. Very buried. Very good. So anyway, what do you got for Buried Treasures? Well, my buried treasure is from 1980, and I wouldn't be shocked if I heard this on Yacht Rock Miami, but I didn't make a note. I don't recall. I do know that it peaked at number 45, even though I had never heard of this song or the band. This is the band was called Heat, and the song is called Baby, This Love That We Found. Well, that's buried for me. Yeah, so that, that yeah. was buried for me until about two weeks ago. Yeah. Interesting. But that's what we need. We need those kind of songs to fill out our list. Exactly. You know? And there's like the whole reason for this podcast is you can never, you never stop discovering new music, even if it's 30, 40 years old. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's, speaking of things that are off the map, we're into off the map. We are into the off the map section. So I'll, uh, I guess I'll go first on this one then. This is actually uh, about as new as new can get. So from being off the map, uh, the main reason being is that this is from 2020. In fact, it's from August of 2020. Jeez. And, you know, we've talked and we want to 
probably delve into this deeper down the road about why the West Coast sound, whether it be Yacht Rock or or AOR, is so big in the country of Sweden, but it is. Yeah. Um, And there is, this is a debut release um, by a guy who uh, is in a band with a bunch of other brothers, but this is his first song by himself, and it is such a yachty gem. The artist's name is Victor Jakob Janssen, and the song is called A Little Denial. Now that's got everything in it, doesn't it? I love that song. Yes. So you sent that to me when you discovered it, and I couldn't stop spinning it. In fact, I found him on Facebook and told him, dude, I can't stop spinning Yeah, we got to try and see if we can get him on to talk about why this stuff is so big in Sweden. If you go to his website, he's got some great writing on there, some great stories to tell, and apparently it's been culturally in his house since he was young so i want to you know learn mm. about that and he does thank uh blue desert which is that west coast.dk oh. for he, they put them in uh their catalog which is really cool yep very cool all right well uh i am going to a song that is really doesn't belong in off the map because it is on jd risner's certified yacht rock playlist oh well there you go but it is an artist that is i think off the map would yeah. you consider prince to be yacht rock no, not at all. But no. the only place I could imagine would be his first album, maybe. Which is entitled? For You. Yep. So a song on For You that is on J.D. Risner's certified playlist. Off the map, but belongs in your list. It's called My Love Is Forever. Right. Prince makes you Remember the, that one? Yeah. I know you're a huge Prince fan. I know, but the, I almost never, for some reason, I love going back to the second album. For some reason, I never make it back to that first one. Yeah. I don't know why. And it's clearly, when you listen to that, that sounds like Yacht Rock. Yeah, it does. Um, especially Yacht Rock Miami type of Well, he Yacht was Rock. so jazz-influenced, too, so he has all those chords in his locker as well. Yep. Cool. Well, it was fun nerding out with you yeah. and how it's made. Um YachtRockPodcast.com is where you can find us, of course, on Facebook and on Twitter. And uh, you can email us uh, suggestions for some topic ideas or guests at YachtRockPod at gmail.com. So until next time, co-captain John, Mm -hmm. ahoy. What do I say? Oh, yeah, poloi. (laughs) Ahoy, poloi, y'all.